legalizefreedom.com. Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Listen without limits. Unchain your brain. Change your thinking. Change your life. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host Greg Moffat and today we present part two with Claire Ray Randall discussing her book, The War on Gender, Postmodernism and Trans Identity. As exposed in part one of our interview, transgender rights have recently come to the fore as a social issue and yet there are many who feel that this is being pushed too far and too fast. It has gone from being a marginal issue to one that is now having a disproportionate influence on social values. However, the radical trans activist agenda to devalue, disrupt and even destroy social and cultural institutions and replace them with nothing but chaos and confusion seems to make no sense. Evolved over hundreds of thousands, if not millions of years of human history, well-developed gender roles and archetypes, with very few exceptions, have allowed our species to adapt to wildly varying environments the world over, with plenty of room left for those who simply do not conform to majority gender patterns. So what's really going on? Delving deep into the dark side of the radical trans movement, we uncover a profoundly anti-human, anti-life agenda involving population reduction, transhumanism, and ultimately, the end of the human race as we know it. Hello and welcome, Claire, and thank you so much for joining us again on LegalizeFreedom.com. Well, Greg, thank you so much for having me back. Well, it's only a few weeks since you and I did our first interview uh, based on your new book, The War on Gender, Postmodernism and Trans Identity, but there was so much left untouched and unsaid uh, by that first interview and also you and I both wanted to expand even beyond the scope of your book into a lot of other deep and dark dimensions of what's happening mm-hmm. um, mm. in the world at the moment. Yeah. Um, if people want to know about your background, your personal story, which is all laid out in your book, they can find a, you know a summary basically by going back to our first interview. Um, I'll simply say uh, that you were born male and that you transitioned during the 1980s, and that's all you know, deeply relevant to all of this, but we're not going to go over that ground again. Mm-hmm. Plus, um, it, plus also, Greg, of course, uh, there's an immense amount of this, about, about the first mm, two-fifths of the book is about my personal you know, life journey before I get into the, the kind of um, uh, you know, theoretical sides and political and all that sort of stuff. So there's a tremendous amount of there in the book already. Yes, it's, it's, as you say, it's, it's biographical and uh, autobiographical and, and very, very, very compelling. Um, oh, thank you. So, quoting from your book, um, you have said that this, the, the trans agenda, let's call it that, because pro, against, or somewhere in between, certainly agenda or agendas at play, and your quote is, it has come from nowhere to become entirely dominant. And that is something that a lot of us have been if not disturbed by, at least, you know, our, we've raised an eyebrow and wondered why this, um, for all the need for 
uh, you know, for all the improvements in equality um, and inclusivity that there has been over the last few decades and continuing progress in many areas and welcome as that is, why this particular issue affecting such a small number of people has become such an enormous social issue, you know, overshadowing issues of, you know, other issues of sexuality and other you know, issues of race and religion. It's completely blotted those out almost. I want to talk about some of the, what I see as radical political and social dimensions of what's happening. Mm-hmm. Now, what I see, um, and again, I, I find myself doing this sometimes, almost apologizing up in advance. I'm not, I'm not going to do that at length, but uh-huh. um, we're, we're not taking all and every topic, sub-movement, sub-interest group, you know, and every individual that might come under uh, trans and gender identity umbrella and somehow saying there's, there's an inherent problem with this, not the point. We're mm. simply mm. F- focusing on certain aspects of it that are mysterious to say the least, if not troubling. Yes, indeed. Um, what I see at work is a social engineering agenda. There are mm. many of the, many of those at play mm. in the world at the moment, but I see that in the, the trans uh, agenda. And it seems to be about devaluing, disrupting, dismantling, and even destroying certain societal and cultural institutions, including the, the idea of binary gender, or, you know, mostly, generally speaking, binary gender, mm. Mm. Uh, in, in humans and other mammals. And, and including the nuclear family, actually. Yeah. Um, anything that we described as traditional. And I think we mentioned in our last interview, a lot of, you know, traditional, uh, there's this whole joke about you do something three times and it becomes a tradition. Yes. That, yes. that doesn't make it good. So a lot of stuff that was traditional for centuries has been jettisoned, and rightly so. But not every, you know, it's baby and bathwater situation, isn't it really? So, mm. but we seem to be living in a, a culture, particularly in the West, of anything goes and nothing matters. And I don't think that anything does go, and I, I, I do think that some things do matter. I think the thing is, um, as, I, as I say right at the beginning of the book, I'm very pleased, I'm very glad for the increased acceptance for uh, gender-divergent people like me um, that's taken place over the last 25 years or so. And, um, and that's all great, except the thing is that almost at the point where um, society had reached this level of acceptance it then got um, appropriated and taken off in a completely different direction now this is a direction which had actually been lurking in the background because I uh, I mentioned in my book a conference I went to in 1975 at Easter in which um, this whole issue was being discussed and there was already at that time a distinction between people such as myself who simply wanted to adjust their uh, gender appearance and um, and expression um, into being what we felt more comfortable with. Um, And there were others who saw this as a um, political, um, a political campaign so that that the the boundaries of uh, gender and sex would be made much more flexible even eroded and destroyed now this is really this is really quite interesting that actually in a way these two points of view are actually almost diametrically opposite and so then um after i completed my transition in the late 80s i just went on and um i just got on with my life i, I was in nursing and um 
I, I carried on that, and then I moved into uh, teaching and further education, and uh, I pretty much left the world of trans and uh, LGB behind. But then in the early 2000s, I found reason to kind of reconnect with it. I heard that there was a Recognition Act going through, and I was astonished. Now, I think I mentioned about David Lammy and the um, gender recognition 2004 yes, debates yes, last last week so last time so i don't need to go into it um in, in any more detail but if you do read those sections um in my book you'll see that this was an issue that was again revived in the early 2000s and we were told that it would not be a problem and yet as the years went by now i remember it was about 2014 that things really started ramping up and it's kind of interesting that also 2014 is about the time that a whole lot of other political issues, seemingly unrelated, also ramped up. And then I found that people in the LGBT world were speaking against me, even though I had been in what some call the kind of groundbreaker generation of the 80s. I mean, there were many before me in the 50s, 60s and 70s. But I suppose the 80s was a time when there was a lot of progress made. Um, there was obviously much debate about um, Section 20-something or other, um, you know, about uh, gay issues in education. And already I think that this was kind of pushing things forward to a level where there was manufactured conflict so that you know, there's always this thing that, you know, the British like to fight for the underdog. So the moment people started feeling that, oh, gay people and trans people, they're being, you know, um, they're being um, disadvantaged. So, of course, that, you know, everybody wanted to get onto it because this, I think, is something which is very much exploited. So in more recent times, um, I found myself being treated as if, um, well, you know, the word... We hear this word now, don't we? Transphobia. Um, I am apparently transphobic because I don't have a blanket acceptance of anybody who simply claims some kind of variant gender identity. So I, I'm I'm very much of the view that there has been political involvement with this. Uh, I mean, as far back as 2009, when... I really started doing a deep dive into this. I was in close contact with the local gender studies department here in Leeds, which is very, very influential. It's one of the most high-profile ones. And I began to realise that they were promoting um, a view of transgender ideology which had literally nothing to do with me because my own view was very much this was something that came out of my own developmental psychology, uh, something I was born with, um, and they're, they're completely into a social constructionist model. And um, I, 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 can only, I can only think that there has to be some kind of motivation behind this, because all the study I did about this as an undergraduate in psychology was very much based on the neurodevelopmental aspects of it and um, other um, research has come to light, things like um, separated twin studies and so on and so forth. 
Um, and then you find out a bit... Then When I was researching the book, I found out about how um, Alinsky... What's his name? Saul Alinsky, who was, uh, interestingly, a mentor of uh, Hillary Clinton um, back in the 60s, and that he had actually... Um, written quite a lot about how to engage in, um, as you say, social engineering. And this is through, you know, manipulating things like social guilt, uh, so that if you feel like um, somebody's pointing out that you're in some way being unfair, then there's a general kind of feeling that you want to kind of get out of that accusation in some way. And if it's a continued social accusation, then one is going to feel like it is a general societal belief that you are in some way, you know, going against. And so one is kind of cowered into a corner of believing or um, admitting or um, conforming to certain beliefs. And what Alinsky did, now he was very, very, um, he was very, very cunning and devious with this because um, uh, you may recall the section in the book where I, I mention this, where he... Now, he wanted to exploit the fact that there were gay people around, um, but he wanted to use people as a mean... gay people as a means of... Uh, as a, Basically, he wanted to weaponize gay people, just like... You know, trans people 20 years ago didn't want to be used as political tools to cause particular social directions. In the same way, I I imagine that there was a lot of gay people who didn't want to be made high profile and all this. Um, And yet, having done this, he then encouraged the gay community to get into the kind of... uh, the kind of world that is not really, it's not really, I don't think it's really representative of a lot of gay people. I have gay friends who, who have seem to have nothing to do with this very, I'm kind of trying to pick my words here so that I don't offend anybody. But I, I think you know what I mean. I mean, for instance, I'm thinking about people like Douglas Murray. Douglas Murray is gay, but he's conservative. He doesn't, you know, he doesn't hold with um, the kind of culture that one tends to, See in gay quarters on a Saturday night, you know. So what? What I think um, what we're seeing now is a kind of modern extension of Alinsky's exploitation and manipulation of gay people from previous decades, and now it's being used to uh, manipulate trans people or people who might not really have an idea of what this is about, but who perhaps just have. Just mixed up kids, perhaps slightly variant sexuality, slightly variant gender identity, might be just able to just put it down to social causes. And then they turn this into a whole kind of social movement, which entrains a lot of people who really wouldn't fit into the profile, but have, you know, been entrained into it by the social pressure and the social engineering. Now, so this goes on to the next one. You're talking about destabilising families. I mean, gay people have already been used for that for quite a long period of time. Again, this is an Alinsky thing. And it's very interesting that this is particularly prevalent 
in the West at the moment, and we're obviously getting pushback. Um, more traditional cultures like Russia, um, they're very hostile to this because they see the political background to this, and they um, they don't want their own societies to be destabilised in the way that seems to have happened in the West. And it, obviously, it's not just gay, trans issues. There's all sorts of other ways that the West is being destabilised at the moment. So um, I can't possibly really see that this could just be some natural social development because it is actual people like myself who who need um to you know pursue a path of uh complete gender reassignment really we don't i didn't and i most of those like myself we don't see it as a political issue about society other than just finding a niche for ourselves well why should douglas murray for example feel that he has to be part of um, what some other subset of gay men might be doing or might be perceived as or how they might be living. Um, He should no more have to do that than I as a heterosexual man should have to feel like, um, you know, I can be put in any other kind of subcategory with other heterosexual men who behave in myriad different ways. Well, well, exactly. A very, very good example. Yeah. But it just so happens. Well, I was going to say that heterosexual men um, aren't being, you know, that hasn't been weaponized, but of course it is. It seems that almost everything uh, every sort of uh, cornerstone, yeah. cornerstone of our civilization is being weaponized well, yeah. you know, one, one against the other. Um, but you mentioned, mentioning Douglas Moore, actually, his his new book, The War in the West. I don't know if you've read it yet, but many of the no, ideas... I've read the previous one. Mm, yeah, well, this builds on, on, on that in many ways. Mm. Uh, many of the uh, you know things that we've been, you've just been speaking about and that we've spoken about in the previous interview and will speak about it for the rest of this talk that have overlaps with other, you know, radical movements seeking to undermine societal and cultural institutions. And it does seem to be about the West, really, um, more than mm. anything else. Mm, there are, there so. are other things are happening in other parts of the world and other cultures, but what we're mainly concerned with is, is the, the culture that we were part well, of. If I can just into. make a little, uh, little interjection there, what's very interesting about this, as you say, the West, is that places like Thailand and India have had trans cultures integrated into them for hundreds if not thousands of years and they have not been destabilized over those hundreds or thousands of years in the way that our own society is being destabilized over a matter of decades oh yeah and that's clearly this is what begs the question that we're asking is what's this all about what's this for it's clearly not just about liberating some oppressed you know, minorities, <laughs> not at all, because mm-hmm. it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's, do, it's doing anything but really at the end of the day. And it's also sucking in all sorts of people that are not and probably will never be genuinely part of that, that, of that minority. Mm. Um, you know, we have a lot of the people now um, claiming to be this, that and the other thing, identifying as this, that and the other thing will never um, undergo any of the actual, uh, yeah, the psychological adaptation that has to come with this but the physical mm. change as well mm. that's you know that that seems to be the the, the least of uh, things on the list when it, these days well yes yes and and um people like me who who have uh, made a reasonably you know fairly adaptive change we are now being um demonized by certain you know part parts as and i'm not talking about the the turfs the trans exclusion radical feminists we'll leave them out for the moment um 
The trans rights activists are calling me true scum. This is their word for trans medicalists. So they, they say, oh, you're a trans medicalist. I'm saying, well, how else could you deal with this? You know, um, but but they say, well, you know, I'm there. They claim to be quite happy with their female male bodies. This is, a, you know, something I really don't understand and something which was a big part of what triggered me into starting to look at this issue, you know, 10 years or more ago. I'd also refer listeners who are interested in these issues to my uh, both my interviews uh, with uh, Norwegian author Bjorn Andreas Bull Hansen, but also uh, but in particular, the one masculinity is not toxic mm-hmm. um because this is the toxic masculinity this is another one of these weaponized phrases being thrown around in all of this and i i resent it deeply again you know being lumped together in, in some kind of uh, cliche you know and cliches are mm. cliches mm. for a reason they do come from somewhere mm. but they tend to oversimplify situations in, in, you know massively and they certainly can't be applied to everybody that people would would like them to be applied too mm-hmm. and I also resent, you know, the other flip side of to- toxic masculinity is probably so- some kind of toxic femininity. Oh, well. I, know, I know some young woman who perhaps would really like to get married and have children and, and, and uh, you know, make a home or something. And that's all clearly oppressive in the language of the day. Mm, mm. But again, it's about, well, that's not for everyone, clearly. And no one should uh, feel that that is their only choice. But for some people, it is a choice. And what I resent is the idea that, under the toxic masculinity banner, any traditional male trait, and that will apply, by the way, to to many gay men as well, oh, not yeah. just not yeah. just um, heterosexual men, mm-hmm. um, but that that's being uh, you know demonised, uh, uh, you know again as oppressive, uh, and what's being held up as evidence is rightly you know not rightly held up as evidence, but it has been in the past you know horror stories from history um, of male oppression of females and male oppression of other minorities and what have you. But again, it's just so black and white. And it's basically saying uh. in, or, in order to right these injustices, which, by the way, you know, as I mentioned earlier, have been lots of injustices of the past have gradually been uh, improved with time, uh, that this all has to be jettisoned in favor of I'm not sure what, because as you point out, well, as these the radical trans activists, the type we're talking about, as they themselves point out, they're offering something that is hollow and quote unquote without a core. So mm. it's, it's throw it all out and replace it with nothing. Well, well, yeah. Um, gosh, I don't know where to start with this. I mean, I, I, there's a slightly tangential point that's come into my mind, and it's it won't it won't leave me until I can say it. So, so for instance, all this stuff about oppression and stuff. I mean, I think we have to accept that the world is a rough and ready place, you know, and that the very comfortable, secure world that we apparently live in in many ways, but is becoming a little bit, well, which is not, which is turning out to be not quite so comfortable and safe as we thought it was, um, is only a very, very recent thing. And, um, it's probably not going to last very long. So, um, well, for instance, now I'm, I seem to have a particular kick on at the moment reading early 20th century novels. Now, I seem to have come across a, a lot of um, old penguins by C.S. Forrester, who was the author of the, the African Queen, the famous Humphrey Bogart, Catherine Hepburn movie. And um, he... He describes a lot of um, 19th century and early 20th century 
very kind of masculine lives. And I find these very admirable because he, he talks about the, I mean, I'm absolutely, I'm absolutely overwhelmed by the the way he describes the hardships that um, men have experienced in um, battles. I'm reading one of his stories about the First World War trenches at the moment. And um, I think to myself, well, these kind of hardships that um, men are so stoical about um, in, you know, we have to say, largely motivated by protecting their homes and their families and their women and their children. um, Is this kind of world of hardship, which has kind of phased out over the last 40 years or so, um, is probably just lurking over the horizon. You know, if our comfortable Western society were to fall and I, I I find some of this some of the way that certain feminists um speak about men, as you say, about toxic masculinity and so forth. Well, if we hadn't had toxic masculinity, we'd have probably been defeated by Napoleon or Hitler or the Kaiser or somebody like that. Um and this is this is its point. I mean it's it's just utterly absurd to think that you know millions of years of evolution have uh, led to something so maladaptive and so hateful as as we are being led to believe it's ridiculous well i think a lot of the dysfunction in in in, in maleness or femaleness in whether you know of whatever sexual persuasion are down to other societal factors you know cultural mm-hmm. factors and mm. not just children's upbringing, but, you know, the, the wider sort of cultural milieu that they exist in. Mm. And that's been increasingly sort of a, you know, a barren and, and very dark, uh, destructive place towards the end of the 20th and into the first part of the 21st century. So, and I, I've spoken about this before, but I get from somewhere up at the top, you know, in, when we say elites, at the, the point at which you can no longer identify or easily identify individuals or groups. You know, you mm-hmm. move up the you move up the pyramid mm. um, of society, you know, and when it becomes a bit hazy, from there seems to come this wider agenda of which this trans thing is part. You know, mm. at its worst, is part of mm-hmm. this wider agenda to dumb people down mm-hmm. and then to castigate them for it. You know, look at the look at these uh, you know at these pathetic creatures. Um, they need to be controlled. They need to be directed. Mm. When you when you've done everything you can to make them like that, well, I I can't help thinking about whether you're uh, trying to lead me into um, mentioning uh, that horrible person Noah Yuval Harari, who talks about people like this. I mean, this dreadful quote of his recently, which says, uh, "What a, what do we need eight billion people for?" Well, I'd say. You don't need them. They need them for themselves. They are living human beings, uh, incarnations of the spirit and their life paths and their, uh, you know, lives and their, you know, values and everything. Nothing to do with him. What right does he have to say? Plus, also, I would say as far as um, as far as, uh, you know, human uh, resources, food resources particularly go, uh, I'm quite convinced that uh, this whole Malthusian famine kind of um, narrative that we're being led into about there's too many people we've got to reduce the population it is is really it, it's actually it's it's false because um well what I mean, we're we're seeing they're they're trying to you know get farmers to downsize their 
productions and stuff like that. So basically, if you just up, you know, if the farmers were just to increase their production, reclaim land. I mean, look what Holland. Holland is one of the largest agricultural producers, not just in Europe, but in the world. I mean, it's a tiny little country. They've reclaimed a few hundred square miles of uh, um, land and um, cultivated intensively. And it shows what can be done. If um, Libya were to use its massive underground water resources to uh, reclaim and recultivate uh, land, as, as I think probably, they're probably doing a bit of that, then, you know, we could find the millions of square miles, millions of square miles of agricultural land could be made uh, available. And I'm quite certain that there's a lot of, um, well, uh, you know, we see the, the troubles in the, um, the, the Ukraine, how the, you know, the, the food supplies are just being deliberately disrupted and I'm quite sure that, you know, we could support 10, 20 billion people on this planet if we really put our minds to it and stop wasting all um, the resources on, you know, non-productive, uh, non-productive things like this. So I think it's I think we're being directly, uh, uh, deliberately directed away from a mindset that can lead us to solutions yeah, I mean, I totally agree. And um, the, the the wider topic that you've touched upon there to do with you know population and food supply, mm. except we'll, we'll we'll get onto that in more detail. Mm. Uh, it's in a little while. Um, but uh, what I wanted with Harari when I watched the same video clips that you did, oh. probably. Um, my yeah, I would like to like have a you know how can I put it a spirited debate with him. Oh yeah. But, but especially when I looked at this creature, and I don't care what people say that you know it just really struck me as like he's one of these guys that you know. Um, got beat up at school and uh, and I'll just say in advance of this that I despise bullies it's one thing uh-huh. when I when I was at school uh-huh. um, and I'm still to this day I would despise bullies if I if I got any agency or any power to like you know to shut a bully down when I see that happening I will mm. do it oh, yeah, good for I you. absolutely despise that behavior that said what I wanted to do when I watched that video of his was punch him <laughs> in the face you know <laughs> Not not yeah. beat him up, just 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 punch him in the face, and uh, just there you go. That's it. That's my comment on what yeah. you had to say. You know, it's my review of your video. Yeah. Well, I would I would um, I would just say that obviously not all people who get be- beaten up at school because they um, are weak uh, turn out to be horrible genocidal lunatics like him. You know, I no was be- no not at all. Far from it. In fact, you know, uh, some of the some of the. Uh, some some of the, you know, the people I know in my personal life have gone mm. on to just do great great things, um, where just were in in that environment, you know, that could be quite, uh, you know, when I was um, at school, particularly in teenage years, you know, it could be you know very competitive and aggressive, mm. oh, and, yeah. it could, and it could be the negative side of, and the girls would do this as well. Oh yeah. So you could see oh, the yeah. negative. Uh, that's teenagers for you. The negative side of mm. masculinity and femininity um, at work there for sure. Um, that, I think that's partly what that competitive competitiveness is partly about what you know grew up growing up and finding yourself is but of course it has a dark side and a dark expression yeah and and part of growing up is is learning to outgrow that spiteful you know 13 year old aspect and and gain more maturity and um uh just you know human respect part of what i see uh in this and again that you know the negative the dark side of the, the trans agenda and i see this in a lot of other similar uh, movements and agendas that are, are moving us you know in the same general direction is and particularly among you know younger 
generations who are part of it, you know, and that tends to be tends to be young people that are getting sucked into this. Mm. Uh, those of us that have been around the block a few times can it can tend to you know see things for what mm. they are a little bit more, mm. and um, it is a um, a fear of of responsibility actually. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of, as I said, you know, it's throwing out traditional values and traditional institutions, whether cultural, social, replacing with nothing, because mm-hmm. then you're mm-hmm. absolved from responsibility, taking responsibility mm-hmm. for your life in some way. And also this impulse to destroy and not to create, it's so much easier to destroy than to create, you know, destroy things, uh, whether literally, uh, you know, as we saw during some of the rioting uh, during lockdown. Mm. Or, you know, metaphorically destroy things, but not replace it with anything because being creative, um, you know, ultimately, the ultimate act of creativity is creating a life, you know, and uh, ugliness is taking the place of beauty. Beauty is now seen as oppressive. Whatever your view of beauty is, whether it's in traditional art, that's then destroyed and replaced by modern art. Mm. And also, ultimately, about a lot of this, so much is about hate but not love. It's not about what we love and what we want to create and how we see the future and what we will take responsibility for. Mm. It's just we hate this, we're destroying this, out with beauty, in with ugliness, anything goes and nothing matters. Well, I'm I'm reminded of, um, uh, you probably know James Dellingpole, I follow his podcast, and um, he interviewed um, an artist a while back, and the artist said something like that. He said he was with a group of people, um, and there was this, um, you know, blue-haired feminist, and he was talking about how he wanted to create art of beauty. And uh, I think she said those exact words: uh, "Beauty is oppressive," or, or possibly something even worse than oppressive. You know, and it, it's just well, the human race has spent thousands of years trying to create objects of beauty, um, architecture, and so on and so forth, poetry, everything, and now all we're left with is. The kind of things that find their way into the, uh, I'm sure J.M.W. Turner would be appalled to find that his name is being used for some of these exhibitions. It's it's astonishing. Well, a lot of the problem with the word beauty and, and other sort of positive, superficially a positive affirmations is how um, materialist culture and consumer culture uh, you know, has sort of hijacked those terms. For mm, example, you know, mm. we're talking, you know, look at the, the cover of, uh, let's take men's magazines, quote unquote, uh, women's magazines or magazines for gay men or, or gay women, whatever. Uh, so for so for decades, you know, particularly, particularly post Second World War, but not exclusive to that, you had these idealized visions of men and women, mm-hmm. um, you know, mm-hmm. which most people could never live up to, even if they wanted to, physical ideas and having mm-hmm. a certain a certain life and a certain lifestyle. So it became that very narrow view. And of course, that, you know, is contemptible. You know, no one wants to look at this airbrushed blonde bimbo in the front of a magazine and imagine that all women want to be like that or mm. should be like that. You know, I don't even notice women like that. Honestly, they walk down the street. <laughs> I don't even, don't even see mm. them. I'm not interested. But if you want to be like that, it's fine. Knock yourself out. But the point is, it was a very narrow vision. So that's where in some people's minds, I think the idea of beauty being oppressive comes from because it's this, it's a mar- marketed, you know, mass produced packaged idea mm-hmm. Um, mm. of, of beauty or any other descriptor. Well, it's a, it's a commercialized commodity. And I was listening to um, a very interesting lecture by uh, Dr. Jason Giorgiani recently. Um, and he was talking about um, philosophy, trying to unify and all the different fields of philosophy, all the way from ontology, epistemology, um, 
uh, ethics and um, all these uh, in the um, looking at the way that philosophy should subdivide or um, categorize uh, reality, the universe, and experience. And um, beauty came into this as it was a bit, it was further down the, um, you know, the the, the categorizations than ontology and epistemology. But it's still um, a kind of quintessential part of it. Um, like you know, a hologram, all parts of a hologram contain all parts of the image. And um, so beauty and rightness are things which um, are inherent. They are not um, things which um, are just kind of constructed ad hoc, you know. Um, And and I think there are, um, you know, objective standards. And and obviously beauty, I mean, the thing is, one one of my big things is that reality is like a fractal. It's always generating new stuff. But it always, the new stuff always somehow has something in common with the old stuff, even though it's new. And this is like how, you know, beauty can be reinvented and reinvented and reinvented. Uh, and yet it's always beautiful. And yet the moment it starts being ugly, everybody can tell. That concludes part one of our interview. Part two will be available soon in the subscribers area at LegalizeFreedom.com. LegalizeFreedom.com.